among your people to hear your word taught, to talk about it, to think about it, and to think about the world that you've made and the inner lives that you have made for us, that you've modeled us on your inner life. And I pray that you will strengthen us, encourage us, that you will incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law and that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love as we see it revealed in the face of Jesus Christ through the scriptures. And it's through him we pray, the one who lives and reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. So we're going to be talking about emotions, and I promise we're going to get to the Psalms, okay? But today, I want, by way of introduction, I want to talk a little bit about the nature and importance of understanding emotions. And I want to lay out for us something of a little bit of a biblical theology of emotions uh, to build our case and give the categories that we'll need to talk about what the Psalms are giving us with regard to the inner life of human people. So then there's a book, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. You guys know Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm sure, around here. Uh, one of his books, Preachers and Preaching and Preachers, is one of Dr. Reader's favorites. So I know he's referenced it often. But he also wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, which is about sorrow and grief and emotionality as a Christian and how to deal with that. And he writes this about the importance of understanding our emotions uh, in that book. I regard it as a great part of my calling in the ministry to emphasize the priority of the mind and the intellect in connection with faith. But though I maintain that I am equally ready to assert that feelings, the emotions, the sensibilities obviously are very vital, we have been made in such a way that the emotions play a dominant part in our makeup. Get that dominant part. This is the most... Like, his way of talking about preaching is that it's logic on fire. This is a guy who's very intellectual. He was, a, he was a medical doctor and then a doctor of theology. And he says, what is the dominant force in our behavior and in our Christian lives? It's actually our emotions that drive and motivate our actions. It's a dominant part of our makeup. Indeed, I suppose that one of the greatest problems in our life in this world, not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of our feelings and emotions. Oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery and the wretchedness that are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their feelings. Man is so constituted that the feelings are in this very prominent position. And indeed, there is very good, there's a very good case for saying that perhaps the final thing which regeneration and the new birth do for us is to put the mind and the emotions and the will in their right positions. To reorder our disordered hearts is the goal of sanctification. And our hearts consist not just of our brain. In the Old Testament, the word heart, the word lave, it's he, is the Hebrew, is used not just to describe how we talk about heart. When I say, I, I, that was very heartfelt, 
I'm talking emotional language. But in Hebrew, the one word lev, the one word or levav, means both can refer both to the mind, the thinking capacity, the will, the volitional capacity of a human being, and also the emotional capacity of the human being. They, the Hebrew mindset is that all of that is an integrated whole, and none of it can be separated from each other. So understanding emotions is imperative for our sanctification and even our knowledge of who God is. They're a very vital piece of what God has given us. They're a great piece of equipment that God has given us to, to connect with Him and to understand Him. So, understanding emotions. First, the first thing I want to talk about is this idea that God is an emotional God. We did bring up last week the, the doctrine of impassibility. And, and uh, we did, I did talk to, you know, uh, Mike gave me the eyebrow when I said God is an emotional God. You know? uh, and that is because historically there's this doctrine called the doctrine of impassibility. Now, in the scriptures, God seems to display a whole, the whole array of emotions. He's grieved, he's joyous, he's angry. He's disgusted. He, uh, he makes peace, he's, he's at peace with people. He has a sense of peace and of trusting and of relationship with other people. These are all things that the Bible asserts about God. So I would say that the emotionality of God is part of his divine essence. It's part of who he is to be an emotional being. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith Chapter 2, verse 1 says that there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being, perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Without passions. Now, what does the Westminster, what are we confessing when we confess that God is without passions? What are we actually saying? A lot of people have interpreted that as meaning that God doesn't have emotions, that God doesn't have the experience in connection with his creation, that he's this cold, distant, emotionless being. Now, what in the world does that mean? The emotions of God. So here's the thing. Here's the question. Does God, does the doctrine of impassibility deny that God has emotions? And here's why I'm talking about God's emotions, right? Real quick. Why is it important that we understand God's emotions? Well, we're sinners, right? We are totally depraved. We are radically broken in every part because of sin. So our every experience with emotions in our lives is broken, distorted, disordered. And so only by looking at God first, who is the model for human emotions, he's the original, we are the things shaped like the original, only by looking at that, this unfallen state of emotions, can we know what emotions are meant to be like. And then, of course, we get the fullest revelation of that in Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. So we get to see perfect, sinless emotions in God and also in the person of Jesus Christ, who fully reveals the emotionality of God. So... One of the ways that the people get around this doctrine of impassibility and go like, well, God doesn't really have emotions is what we call uh, anthropomorphisms. You know, 
The Bible says that God has eyes, but we know that God doesn't have a body, right? So what, the, what does the Bible mean when it says that God has eyes? Any thoughts, ideas? What does the Bible mean when it says God has eyes or hands or feet? He treads upon the sea. He rides the clouds. Genesis chapter 2, God is right there in the dirt, shaping the word that's used for how he shapes man is how one would take clay and mold it. And the image that you're supposed to get isn't this far distant God creating by his word when he creates man. When he creates everything else, he just uses his word. He's far, he's distant. But when he steps down to create man, he, now all of a sudden he's Yahweh God. He's the God of the covenant. And he comes down and you can see him just in the dirt, molding and shaping humanity. He's got this intimate relationship with humanity from the very start. Now, what is, when the Bible says that God has hands, that his right arm is strong, it doesn't mean that he has a literal right arm. It means that he is omnipotent, that he has all power, and that our arm, your hand, your arm, corresponds to something real about him. And he's given you arms and hands in order to manifest his power and strength and ability to shape reality in his world. So God can use anthropomorphic language in the Bible only because we are actually theomorphic. We are shaped like God. So therefore, God can speak to us in language about us. He can speak to us in our language, and we can understand that only because we're shaped like he is. So what is this divine impassibility? Why, why is there all this uh, hubbub about denying that God has emotions? Why, why do so many histori historical theologians so adamant to go like, we don't want to say God has emotions? Well, one, the early apologists wanted to deny that God had emotions because they didn't want the God of the Bible to be thought of like Zeus or Artemis or Hera, the gods of Olympus who are fickle and capricious. They didn't want you to think of God as this being who flows back and forth with every wind and who you can't expect the same things from every time. You never know how he's going to react. Think about the, the gods of Greece. You never know what they're going to do. One of the big differences in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, God says, is there any God like me who has told a people what he actually expects of them? You see, gods in the Old Testament, the surrounding gods, they, they couldn't reveal themselves to anyone because they're either demons or not real. And so they couldn't say, this is what I require. This is what will appease me. This is what's pleasing to me. This is, what, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what makes me angry. This is what makes me happy. But God says, what makes me different is I've come down and revealed myself to you. I've told you, oh man, summarized very well in Malachi. I've told you, oh man, what I expect of you. To do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with me, with your God. So... The God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, isn't like those capricious deities. But beyond this, so the Bible ascribes emotions to God over and over, and beyond just ascribing these emotions to God, 
God speaks throughout his word in highly emotional language. So the Bible says God has these emotions. Genesis 6, 6, we see that God grieves. All these, there are, I'll get to them in a little bit. There are a whole list of passages and emotions that God displays. The Bible is pretty adamant that God is emotional. And beyond just ascribing emotions to God, God speaks throughout his word in highly emotional languages. Language. So it's not just the outright ascription to God of emotions, but think about this. Ezekiel 33.11 says this, Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. This is God speaking to his people. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So when God says that, does he say it? Turn back. Turn back. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Does he, does he say that like uh, the guy from Ferris Bueller? 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 Does, no, he, the words themselves. You can't read those words without feeling them drip with emotion. Turn back. Turn back, oh my people. Turn back to me. Turn from your evil ways so you don't die, O house of Israel. You can hear the tears in his voice, and you ought to hear them. And if you said it any other way, it would misconstrue and miscommunicate what is true about God, that he really does care, and he really is connected to his people. Or think about Paul in Romans eleven thirty three. He bursts out with excitement. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. He's just been talking about the gospel. and He's making this turn to talk about application. And he just bursts with praise, with joy at all the mercy that God has shown and all the compassion and kindness that he's shown in the Son. And if I were to read that to you as, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? I do an injustice to what the text is trying to communicate. And it's not just the exuberant emotions that the text communicates. Something as mundane as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This utter calm that you see on the first pages of the Bible. The, the, The... The earth was formless and void. The earth was wild and waste. But then the Spirit of God hovers over the waters like a bird brooding over its nest to bring forth life. That calm sense of peace, those are emotions too. Everything is laden with emotionality. So neither does Scripture draw a sharp contrast, and I talked a little bit about this, between emotions as part of our mind and the intellect as this other category. Like you think over here and you feel over here. It doesn't divide them into separate things. In the Old Testament, the heart is the intellect, the will, and the emotions. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a play-by-play of God's emotion, uh, God's internal reasoning a lot of the time. It just tells us what he decided. It tells us what he thought. It doesn't tell us how he arrived there. 
a lot of the time. So we're only given the thoughts and decisions that God makes. And the same is true about emotions. Scripture doesn't put them in a different category than God's thoughts and decisions. However, some theologians want to draw this sharp distinction between God's emotions and the other content of the mind. God's thoughts in in this sort of scenario, it's God's thoughts are real. But as soon as you start talking about God's wrath, God's anger, well, he's not really angry because he doesn't have any emotions. So that you can say, well, if I say something like God knows his people, he knows everything about you. He knows the hair, numbers of the hairs on your head. That can be true. But if I say God has compassion on you, the way that a father has compassion on his son, whom he loves. Well, this hard-nosed doctrine of impassibility, this uh, misunderstanding of the doctrine, really, would say that that compassion isn't real. It's just anthropomorphism. But that misunderstands that only God can only speak anthropomorphically because there's something true in us that corresponds to something truer in him. There's something second in us that corresponds to something first in him. Now, it's beyond, it's more, it's qualitatively different. It's holy compassion. Holy, holy, holy compassion. Holy, holy, holy anger. It is separate, it's different. But the whole point of being in the image of God is that everything in him corresponds to something in us. Everything in us corresponds to something in him. We're analogously related to him. So here's a couple of observations just to maybe add a little more clarity. One, some of the differences between our emotions and God's One of them is that our emotions are also connected with our bodies, right? We often have these physical things that accompany our emotions. You feel sad, you start to cry. You feel happy, you get get more energy, you start to burst and and you, you feel like you're walking on clouds. You get angry and you start to feel hot, like your face gets hot, your neck gets red. You get disgusted, you wanna throw up. When you are moved with compassion, you feel it in your, in your viscera. The word for compassion in the New Testament, I love this word. It's splanknamai. It means guts. And so when Jesus sees the crowds that are harried and out in the wilderness and they don't have anything to eat, the Bible says that he, he had splanknamai for them. He felt it in his gut. And so we have this physical manifestation of our emotions. When you get angry, there's an adrenal gland in your brain that triggers and it starts to push the blood away from your digestive organs. And that's why you feel a little queasy when you first start to get angry. And it pushes the blood into your muscles and into your brain so that you're, so that you can think faster and so that you can react more quickly. 
When you get afraid and you might need to flee from something, some threat or some danger, your body does the same thing and it starts to tell you, all right, get out of here. So the, and it's, so there's early, uh, I just read this. There's this early, uh, investigation, the difference between fear and anger. And we'll talk about this some, uh, in the coming weeks. Um, as we go through the each individual emotion, when you're afraid, more blood gets shunted to your legs. But when you're angry, more blood gets shunted to your upper body muscles. Fight or flight. What do you need if you're going to be fighting? You're going to need to, you're going to, need to grab. You're going to need to fight. And if you're angry, you may, your, your body's telling you this. And if you're, if you need to run away in fear, you're going to need to be, you're going to need more blood in your leg muscles because you got to get out of there. And so our bodies are bound to our emotional states and they make emotions within us. These chemical responses and things in our brains. God is not, of course, doesn't have a body except for when he takes one to himself in Jesus. And then what do we see in Jesus? He weeps. John 11, and we'll talk about this when we get to anger. He snorts with anger. The Bible uses really just earthy language. He's, it's the language that you would talk about a bull snorting. He's at the tomb of Lazarus. And death has taken his friend. And death is not going to get between him and the one that he loves. And so he is going to get angry and he's going to demolish death. So that's what anger is for. But so it's all in his body. God, of course, doesn't have those physical processes. God, but just because God doesn't have a body doesn't mean he doesn't have emotions. We, we wouldn't, you know, dream of saying, you wouldn't dream of saying God can't think because he doesn't have a brain. So why does he need a body to feel emotions? His emotions are like ours. Ours are like his, not identical to them. Second, uh, the doctrine of impassibility, of God's lack of emotions, uh, clashes, some would argue, with God's decree, God's eternal decree. Now, what is that? Anybody know? Anybody know what are, what are God's eternal, what, what is, what is God, God's decree? It's an easy answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Going once, going twice. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. God decrees whatever happens. Whatever happens, God decreed it. Nothing happens apart from God's decree. And so God is unchanging, and he's got this unchanging nature, and he's utterly self-existent, and we t it tends to make us think that God can never actually respond to anything. If everything that happens happens because of his decree, how can he respond to anything that happens? Emotions are by nature responsive. That's what they are. You see a stimulus, you see a tiger crouching in the trees of the jungle, you see it, you evaluate, that wants to eat me, and your brain starts squirting adrenaline to move that, to move that blood away from your digestive system into your muscles and to get you to, to give you the extra strength you need to get away. 
So that's what emotions are. They're responses to things. And so responding, the fact that emotions are responsive by nature seems to deny that God could have them, right? Because he can't really respond if he's decreed everything and he can't change. But although God's eternal decree doesn't change, what he has ordained to come to pass will come to pass. That decree ordains change. He has decreed that things will change. God's decree ordains a historical series of events, each of which receives God's evaluation. So he ordains a historical event, and he evaluates that historical event. So God evaluates different events in different ways. He evaluates uh, the um, rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness as bad. And he responds with anger and grief. He responds to Jesus' faithfulness that he ordained in dying, and he rejoices at the faithfulness of the one who would be faithful to him even unto death. And those evaluations are fixed elements in God's eternal plan. They are genuine evaluations of the event. They're not fake. So it's not wrong to to describe these evaluations as God's actual response to things. God is beyond time and space, but he's also within time and space. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's there. He's far above everything we could ever imagine, but he's right here. From the very first pages of the Bible, he's the dove hovering within his creation. His presence is part of his character. And so... He views these events that he has decreed from a perspective, not just afar off watching them happen, but from within them and evaluates them right there in the moment. And that's a real response. And that kind of responsiveness, it doesn't imply some sort of passivity or weakness in God. God responds only to what he has himself foreordained to come to pass. Now, God has chosen to create a world that would provoke his grief, that would make him angry, that would make him filled with disgust. He's ordained to make that world. So he has ordained for himself suffering. It's freely chosen, and he is always active in it. That's the difference. It's not passive, it's not happening to him. You can't take anything away from him but he has ordained and decreed and planned for himself to suffer on our behalf and to, and to let his children wander from him to whom he loves. So God ultimately is the evaluator of all these things. I talked about the language his emotions, God evaluates these things not just in neutral language. He doesn't just go bad, good, bad, good, this is good, this is bad. He's not a robot. When he evaluates things, when we talk about God's reigning, or we talk about, you know, the, the language just 
is meant to evoke an emotional response in us in the Bible. What's more powerful if I say God rules everything? Or what if I choose the biblical language and the rich image? God is Lord of lords. God is king of kings. You know what kings and rulers are like, how they wield power? Well, he's the Lord over every lord and the king over every king. Like, do you feel it? Do you feel the, the joy in that? That's our God. That's my God. That's my friend who's the Lord of lords and the king of kings. You start to feel the joy of it well up in you when you hear it spoken like that. And that's the purpose. So since the intellectual capacity and the emotional capacity can't be separated from each other, any claim that God lacks emotions would also be a claim that God is limited in his intellectual capacity. Do you get that? Emotions are part of the intellect. They're part of the internality. And to say God doesn't have that when we do is to say we have something he doesn't. Something he calls good. And so he lacks some good thing. Therefore, if God doesn't have emotions, he's inferior to us intellectually. So the doctrine of divine impassibility can't mean that. God's, it means that God's emotions aren't like ours. They're far beyond and above everything that we can imagine. And also, he doesn't view, he doesn't experience emotions through the clouded lens of sin that we do. And so they're more pure, but they're also far beyond ours. J.I. Packer, to summarize this point, puts it this way in Knowing God. It's a great little book. Good introduction to theology if, if you're looking for one. God has no passions. This does not mean that he is unfeeling, impassive, or that there is nothing in him that corresponds to emotions and affections in us. But that whereas human passions, especially the painful ones, fear, grief, regret, despair, are in a sense passive and involuntary, being called forth and constrained by circumstances not under our control, the corresponding attitudes in God have the nature of deliberate, voluntary choices and therefore are not of the same order as human passions at all. So the love of God who is spirit is not fitful it's not a fitful, fluctuating thing as human love is, nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. It is rather a spontaneous determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. There are no inconsistencies or vicissitudes in the love of the Almighty God who is spirit. His love is, a, is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. Nothing can separate it from those it has once embraced. So why spend all this time talking about the emotional nature of God and justifying speaking of him as emotional? I know it can seem like it's an esoteric, strange, complex argument that you're making. and I don't really understand why it's a big deal. Here's why it's a big deal. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. 
If you imagine God as a cold and immovable stoic, so far removed from joy and suffering that they are merely conceptual to him, you will become a cold and lifeless creature, unable to experience joy or sorrow, zeal or the trembling awe of true fear. A sense of, you won't be able to experience a sense of sweetness and rest upon the rock that is higher than I or the righteous and bitter disgust at anything that would threaten that peace. You won't feel the anticipatory hope of the resurrection that is there even though you feel your body wasting away day by day, me more than some others, but your body's wasting away when you're fixed with this hope of the resurrection. You won't be able to feel that. You can conceptualize it, but you won't be able to feel it. And you won't be able to feel the shock and surprise to find that though your body is wasting away day by day, inwardly you're being renewed. You won't be able to look in and go, I did a, I did a right thing. <laughs> I, I did a loving thing. That's, that's amazing. God is reversing sin in me. You won't be able to feel the excitement and the surprise and the shock at your faith, the way that Jesus felt shock and surprise at the faith of the centurion. The hope of growing beyond passions. That was the goal of Platonists and Gnostics. That's, the, that wasn't, that's, not, the, that's not the biblical ideal. For them to become a pure spirit was the ideal, to be separated from this body and all the emotions, all the icky, gooey emotionality of it. Not so for us, the followers of the God whose name, Exodus 34, 14, whose name is passion. His name is jealous. Exodus 34, 14. At the very essence of who he is, that's what he means by name, is a passionate love for his people. And when describing his very essence to Moses at Horeb, Yahweh doesn't paint himself in the, in the icy grays of Aristotle's unmoved mover. Yahweh's compassion, his rahum is the Hebrew word, is the pink warmth of a mother's womb and the dancing orange light and shadow of a father's hearth. His grace, his chanun, is the dazzling translucence of precious gems. Yahweh's slow anger, erech apayim, slow anger, is the blazing red glow of simmering coals. His loyal love, his chesed, is the crimson streak of blood shed to secure covenant friendship. Now, the crisp white snow-covered peaks and the bright amber warmth of the sun fail to compare to Yahweh's faithfulness, his emet. These are the words that he uses to describe himself in Exodus 34. His faithfulness is more constant than mountains and more dependable than the course of the stars in the heavens. There's something far more dynamic in the inner life of God than the static indifference of the deistic watchmaker born out of the Enlightenment. So, if we understand who God is, that He's not this far-off, distant, cold God, He's at pains to communicate that to us. 
So then we can begin to understand what emotions were meant to be, what they were meant to do, how they were meant to shape us, how they're meant to connect us to God and one another, how they're meant to motivate righteous actions. So that's what we're going to be getting into. So we'll be looking at just a little pointing forward. What we'll be looking at in the coming weeks is I've got eight emotions and they come in pairs and we'll be looking at them and seeing how God displays that emotion, how we see it displayed in Jesus Christ, and then how the psalmist, the, the fallen human, engages and deals with that emotional state. So that's kind of going to be the three points of every lesson for the next weeks. Is that good? All right, let me uh, pray for us and we will go to worship. Father, I thank you for the rich inner depths of your being, that you are not an icy cold deity, but you are the dynamic, passionate God who suffered the loss of his son on the cross. You are the God, Lord Jesus, who shed your own blood for your people. And you didn't do so dispassionately like a stoic, but for the joy that was set before you. And Holy Spirit, you are the God who is grieved by our failure and rebellion. Father, be with us today. Stir up in us right emotions in the coming weeks and help us to listen to them, to engage with them, and to engage with you through them. I pray these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit. One God, forever praised. Amen.